Good morning. Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you are uh, opening your Bibles, uh, if you haven't done that already, to Hebrews chapter 8, let's pray. Father, as we study your word this morning, Father, may open our minds to know uh, that which you have given us to know. And Father, may you increase our affections and our love for the truth of which you've given us to know. Father, I ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. And so, if you've been around here for a while... Here we go again, another sermon on the distinction between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Why another one? I have two reasons. The first one is this. We simply work through books of the Bible, and if he saw fit to say it a hundred times, then we shall see fit to say it a hundred times. Second reason, a bit longer. We live in a world where it's easier to break a promise than it is to change our habits. Instead of displaying fortitude, determinance, perseverance in our commitments, it's easier when something gets hard or inconvenient to just trade it in for something new or different. A couple examples in marriage. A couple makes all these commitments to each other, these covenants, till death do us part. Of course, many have said until our, our journeys may depart, but till death do us part, or, or as many today, they'll say, uh, you know, until our stories go a different way, apparently. But till death do us part is how majority of those marriage vows and, and commitments go. And then all of a sudden, the hab- habitual ways you live, or one person lives, collides with the habits of the way she lives. And boom, now we have a choice. Do I change my habits 
or do I change my commitments? Most opt for ditching the commitments. Sure, they may try for a little bit, but they ditch their commitments. Now, now don't think just extreme with me and, and thinking like divorce. Well, I would never do that. For many of us, this ditching of our commitments instead of changing our habits looks more practically like when my habits collide with her habits, I drop my commitment to be warm towards her. I drop my commitment to make myself emotionally available or my mind available. Instead, I give myself away to things like work, yard work, the kids, or me time. That was in quotes in my notes, me time was. Y'all are like hard. Come on, laugh. Okay, thank you. In churches, in churches. I was like a stiff crowd this morning, my goodness. I know I'm not the funniest person, but when I try, a little love would be great. There we go. In churches, in churches, it's much easier to go find a church that won't collide with your sinful habits than it is to deal with those sinful habits. In fact, you can find churches that won't even preach on those sinful habits, and indeed some that might even affirm those sinful habits. Heck, you can even find a church that will ignore another church when they excommunicate you for your sinful habits. So it's easier to just pick up and move on. But here's the good news. Our Lord Jesus Christ is not a flaky, fickle, or limp-wristed when he comes to keeping his covenant, as many Christians are today, as many of us can be at times. When he makes a covenant, he keeps it. We see this in the old covenant. The reality is in the old covenant, the old covenant did not fail. We failed. God's people failed. And, in, and as such, Jesus, and the Lord, was not obligated to that covenant. He could have sent another flood. He could have brought the fire. But instead, he makes a new covenant. One that could deal with our problem from the inside out. When you and I make a covenant with another and that person breaks it, here's the reality. You and I don't have the power to change that person who breaks that covenant with us from the inside out. But the Lord Jesus Christ does. When we broke the covenant with Christ, he has the ability to deal with the heart problem and deal with it for good. And praise God that he has made a new covenant. He didn't just pick up and move on and go down the street. When his righteous habits collided with our unrighteous habits, he made a way for us to change those unrighteous habits. See, the covenant, the first thing I want you to see is a better kind, not just a different time. It's a better kind, 
not just a different time. I want to dip back into the passage from last week for just a moment here. You see, the old covenant was a copy and a shadow, it says. Look at verse 5. It says, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. He's referring to the old covenant and the tent and the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. This serves as a copy and a shadow. Now, let me ask you a couple of questions. In order for something to be a copy, there needs to be what? An original. In order for something to be a shadow, there needs to be what? The actual object. There is no shadow without the object of which it is a shadow of. Now, when we think, though, the difference about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, I think we tend to distinguish them wrongly. Two ways that we tend to distinguish the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. One is we often make a chronological distinction only. The Old Testament was then. The New Testament is now, which I think is missing the point and ultimately not true. I think you see this in a moment. Two, the other distinction we tend to make is we make a, what I would call a grace distinction. Well, the old covenant was legalism, and the new covenant is where the grace is, which again, is not true. So then what happens, because we distinguish the old covenant and the new covenant wrongly, we end up with a bunch of Christians who are terrible at being Christians because they either ignore the old covenant or they don't understand how to apply the Old Covenant because they distinguish between the two wrongly. If you haven't noticed, my personal conviction is that an appropriate understanding and use of the Old Covenant is one of the greatest issues in our current day. For decades and generations, we have neglected the Old Covenant We have relegated it as, well, that was then and the New Testament is now. The Old Testament was legalism. The New Testament is where the grace is. Now, back to the the questions I started with. In order for something to be a copy, there has to be what? Here's the reality. In order for the old Old Covenant to be a copy or a shadow, then the New Covenant had to be in existence already. Okay, hang with me. That's what the text says. In Hebrews 5, it's a copy. It's a shadow. Moses was instructed to copy this covenant that was in existence. And how could he copy something if it didn't exist already? Here's the key, and and hopefully this is a helpful uh, vocabulary for you. The old covenant was a copy of the heavenly covenant. So I think the better distinction, when we think about the old covenant and the new covenant, the new covenant is the heavenly covenant. The old covenant is the heavenly shadow covenant. Heavenly covenant earthly or a heavenly shadow covenant. So when when Moses begins to write the laws and the sacrificial system and all in the tent and the tabernacle and all that comes into existence in time, space, in human history, he was copying on earth 
this heavenly covenant that was already present. Both were in existence at the same time, but the heavenly covenant didn't come to fulfillment until the heavenly priest came to earth. So it was in existence, but it didn't see its completion and its fulfillment until we get to the coming of Christ, when he comes, when the heavenly priest himself comes and the shadow is no longer needed because the actual thing is present. You see, the minister of the new covenant, Jesus, we know is without beginning of days or end of life. Now listen, this does, doesn't this make great sense when you consider the physical priest went into a physical temple with a physical sacrifice, yet Jesus was a heavenly priest that went into a heavenly temple offering the heavenly sacrifice. You see, the new covenant doesn't start in time, although it does come to fruition and fulfillment in time. Now part of the, part of the reason why this is important is because... If the New Test, if the Old Covenant is a shadow, if it's a heavenly shadow of the heavenly covenant, then what he is copying is also the graciousness of that covenant that we tend to divorce from the Old Covenant. And it makes greater, greater sense, hopefully, as we go here. The next thing I want you to see is the problem with the Old Covenant. So keep those things about the heavenly shadow covenant and the heavenly covenant. Keep those in your mind as we move forward. The problem with the Old Covenant. Now, as we think about this, what was wrong with the Old Covenant? What was wrong? The thing you need to realize, if, if understand the, the flow of the Old Testament narrative, the Old Covenant was given amidst the greatest manifestations of grace in the entire Old Testament. In fact, outside of the cross, the greatest example of grace to God's people is displayed when the Old Covenant is established. You say, well, what's happening? Refresh my memory, please. This is the Passover lamb and the rescuing, the redemption from uh, Egypt. And they're in the wilderness and they go through the Red Sea and then they come to Mount Sinai. That's where the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is established. That is the greatest picture. The greatest picture we have of redemption outside of the cross is the rescuing of God's people from slavery in Egypt and the Red Sea. God saves Israel by grace. He leads them out of Egypt by grace. He leads them through the Red Sea by grace. He brings them to Mount Sinai to receive the law by grace. The problem with the Old Covenant was not a lack of grace. You see, again, if the Old Covenant was a copy of the New Covenant that was already in existence, then that means that the graciousness of the New Covenant was being shadowed, reflected, copied in the Old Covenant. But again, we tend to think of the Old Covenant as just all rules. But now God's being gracious. Listen, the problem with the Old Covenant 
was the unfaithfulness of the people of the covenant. It was not a lack of grace. We have story after story of the people's faithlessness or unfaithfulness. Hebrews 8.9 alludes to this. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What's he referring there to? Right, in our passage here, he's referring to the Exodus. He's referring to redemption from Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. So Do you see the picture there? The problem with the old covenant was not the covenant itself. It was the unfaithfulness of God's people. Look at the argument. I made a covenant. I rescued them by grace out of bondage. They sinned against my covenant, so I let them go back to bondage. That's the argument. The blame for this broken covenant does not lie with God and his design of that covenant. It lies with man and his unfaithfulness in keeping the covenant. Now the problem with mankind then and now is sin. We know this, but that was the problem with the old covenant. Now, now some of our struggle is we think that the problem before was that the people were generally good and that the law was bad. It just wasn't gracious enough. I think our problem now is still the same, that people are generally good and thank goodness for the new covenant or, quote, the gospel, because all I need is for my edges to just be polished off a little bit. I'm generally a good person. I mean, why else, if, if that's not our general mindset, then why else do we ignore or avoid the old covenant? We ignore it oftentimes because we're just generally good people. And all we need is a little Jesus added to our stellarness. That's not, what the, that's not the solution. That's not the problem. The problem is sin. The next thing that underneath this idea of the problem, of the, the old co- uh, problem with the old covenant is that rejecting God does not open the door to freedom. And that's what they thought in the old covenant. That's where their unfaithfulness came. If we just reject God, we can go about our ways. That's why they say, well, can't we just go back to Egypt? What are they doing? They're rejecting God because they think life is going to be better if they just turn around and head back to Egypt. The the, the world does this. Western culture is a vast illustration of this principle. Look where this supposed freedom from God has gotten us as a culture. From things like transgenderism. But But with us Christians, things don't oftentimes look much different we oftentimes look just like our coworkers because we think freedom from God and his standards is freedom. That's the lie we believe. But that's what he's saying here in Hebrews 8 and 9. For they did not continue in my covenant. So I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. What's he saying? For those who thought it would be better outside of my covenant, things got worse. Rejecting God does not open the door to freedom. Now, some of us don't reject God outright by saying, no, I ain't going to do that. 
But what we have done is we have oftentimes strategically forgotten what he has said about certain things, or we don't spend the time to go hear what he has said. And that's particularly the case when it comes to the Old Covenant, when it comes to the Old Testament law. Well, that's then, this is now, and I'm, part of what I'm saying to you is that's real convenient. It's real convenient for your sin to just set aside all of that. And I think it's one of the greatest schemes that our devil has coaxed Christians into and our own flesh has went towards is conveniently situating ourselves so that we don't have to listen to a, the majority of the Bible. Now, because the old covenant was a shadow, a shadow is necessarily inadequate. Okay? Now follow me. It doesn't mean the old covenant was broken, but it was inadequate. It did not lack grace. It was gracious. Instead, it was inadequate in fixing our need. It could not fix our need. That's important. Again, God didn't fail in the shadowy covenant. Instead, the shadowy covenant perfectly stated the expectations of the covenant of God and clearly presented the means of atonement for failure to do so. The problem is that we needed more help than that. The inadequacy is that we needed more help than that. Now listen, that doesn't mean we deserved that help or that God was obligated to give us that help. So this is where, thank God, he made a new covenant with us because the new covenant he makes with us is adequate to fix our need. What we needed and what we need is what's called an administration of salvation, meaning the, the covenant that would deal with our salvation internally, or to put it in more simple terms, that would give us a new heart. We needed a covenant that could change us from the inside out. And the old covenant was inadequate to do that. The old covenant could not deal with the problem, hear me clearly, that we had created. When our hearts chose to go a sinful way and break the covenant. But the new covenant does deal with the problem we created. It transforms those who come to God through that covenant. It transforms our hearts. Now, before we talk more about the new covenant, I want to ask this question. Why would God give mankind a shadow of the earthly covenant? Why would he give mankind a shadow of the earthly covenant, especially if the new covenant or the heavenly covenant was already in existence? Why would he go through 4,000 years of that? I think there's multiple reasons. But if the new covenant was already a thing, why the old covenant? 
I think it's just a partial answer. Man's problem has always been from the garden. We can choose good and evil on our own apart from God and such that we can be the most glorious ones. That was the problem in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't just that they ate the fruit. It was that they said, we can write the laws the way we want to. We call that moral legislative autonomy. We can do this on our own. We're good. That was Adam and Eve. So here's what happens. God lays out exactly what it looks like to choose good and evil correctly and says, there you go. Do it. My character expressed in law what's good and evil. Go live it. Well, for 4,000 years, man fails over and over and over again. And for 4,000 years, God is patient. He waits. And here's what's on display for 4,000 years. Man is utterly helpless to save himself, even when God gives him a play-by-play. Even when God gives you a play-by-play, we are utterly helpless. What's further amazing, just as a side note, is now 6,000 years later, 2,000 years on this side of the cross, mankind still thinks he can do it on his own. Some of you in this room, sitting here right now, think you can still do it on your own. In your arrogance, you, along with the rest of the world, think you can make it on your own, even with 6,000 years of evidence saying that you can't. Listen to me. I, listen, I'm going to be real straight at it. There is no greater display of arrogance than that. No greater display of arrogance than looking at 6,000 years of man trying to prove himself and then you saying, I think I can do it myself. You're a fool. But for the humble, for the humble, for those who truly call him Lord, our God, the new covenant works internally and it transforms those who come to God through it. The new covenant is better because it's, it's the real thing. It's not the shadow. And the real thing transforms us in a heavenly way. It transforms our heart. And we're going to talk about how does it do that in a moment. See, the new covenant comes down from heaven to replace the shadowy copy, a new covenant, a better covenant, one that's not inadequate. <clears throat> Again, the old covenant, follow me here, the old covenant shows us still what the outside should look like. So we don't depart from that. The old covenant shows us what the outside should look like. The new covenant and its promise gives us the power on the inside to do what we should be doing on the outside. They work together in a beautiful way. And how amazingly gracious is that? That God would show us the way it's supposed to look and then give us the power from the inside to actually do it. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have just said, figure it out. You, Adam and Eve, you said you could figure out what's right and wrong. Go at it. Go for it. Instead, he gives an old covenant that says, here's what it looks like. 
I know you said you thought you could figure it out, but here you go. Here's what it looks like. Now do it. And then they fail and fail and fail and fail. And then there's this new covenant. Why'd they fall? Because they didn't have the heart to, to, to love and cherish and do what they were supposed to do. So God makes a new covenant. God makes a new covenant. Next, the promises of the new covenant. The promises of the new covenant. First subpoint: an inward transformation. An inward transformation. So promises of the new covenant, number one, an inward transformation. Look at verse 10, the second part of verse 10. He says, I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I don't have time, I'm not going to take the time right now to explain, but this is different than the beginning of Romans. It talks about a general uh, moral law that, that people have a general sense. There's a different thing than what he's talking about here. In the Old Covenant, God gave the people his law, but the covenant, but that covenant did not give them the ability to receive it, love it, and keep its commands. Romans 8.3, for God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do. So God has done what the law could not do. Once again, he's showing us that for 4,000 years, the weakened flesh was on display. But in the new covenant, God provides a way for our weak flesh. Now, now, by the way, weak, he doesn't just mean like you need some more muscles. Like he means sinful flesh. And what's he do? According to Hebrews, it says, uh, who's quoting Jeremiah, he actually places the law within us. He takes the law and writes it within us. Now, now let's make a note here. What law does he place within us? Just curious. I mean, we as New Covenant Christians like to talk about, oh man, he's written the law in our minds and, and set it on our hearts and awesome and I can go be a great Christian. What law do you think that is? Where do you think it came from? What's he, what's he putting in there? Love God, love neighbor, end of story. I mean, it is that. That is part of it. It's the whole old covenant. It's the old covenant law. That's what he's writing on there. So if you want to know what's being written on your heart, you should go read it. It's there. That's what Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah. Again, now, remember, you say, well, okay, well, how do you know that that's what it is? Well, who's he quoting here in Hebrews? Jeremiah. What was Jeremiah a part of when he says, God's going to write this on your heart and put these laws? What laws does Jeremiah have in mind? The one of which he's following as an old covenant prophet. God doesn't do away with the old covenant laws. Instead, he just makes, he takes them and he puts them in our minds. The difference is that he, he, he takes it and he gives, puts it in our minds and gives us a heart to love them. I mean, what a marvelous gift to us. I, I mean, don't you wish, like as, as parents, as you set up standards for your kids to walk by or give them laws, don't you wish you could like reach into their heart 
and shift their hearts such that they love doing exactly what you've asked them to do? Wouldn't that be amazing? Come on. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yes, it would. Let me give you some evidence. If you possess eternal life through faith in Christ, here's what happens. If this is true of you, from Hebrews 8.10, you start wanting to obey God's law, and you want to know more of this law to go obey. It delights you. It's tasteful to you. You find yourself eager to know it and to do it. It brings you joy and delight and satisfaction and fulfillment to know it and to do it, to be in church where they teach you God's law and teach you how to fight against those who don't keep God's law. You're eager to read your Bible and know it well, to pray, to commune with other believers who are doing the same. You find yourself loving the Lord's ways, loving what He has commanded us to do. Now, I think there's an important order, like sequence here, for us to grab a hold of. I don't think it's by accident or just happenstance that he talks about the mind and then talks about the heart. He puts the law in our minds, then comes writing it on our hearts. In our culture and church culture as well, this has been flipped completely upside down. In exchange for, this is how I feel, and let me go make my mind accommodate how I feel. But not only is the mind to be included, but the mind is more foundational. It comes first. But oftentimes in in our current context, Christian brains are nowhere to be found. Like almost like God left it out of the DNA strand. Well, the reality is you cannot love that which you don't know. How do you do that? How do you love something you don't know? You can't. Spurgeon says this, when he writes his law in our heart, he makes us to approve it. An ungodly man wishes to alter God's law. Someone who doesn't love it is going to seek to alter his law. But what he gives us is understanding, and then he will write it on our hearts, meaning he will increase our affections for it. But first we have to understand truth. Then we have to embrace it, commit to it, and love it in our hearts. Listen, that's how saving faith works. That's how saving faith works. Understanding, then affections. Now, let me get kind of practical and personal here for, for a moment. Some of your affections, some of yours and your affections for the Lord are terribly weak. Why? Because some of you, your understanding is terribly weak. You have very little to love. You have very little to love. You know a whole lot about your careers. You know a whole lot about this hobby or that hobby, and you love those things. But you love the Lord little because you understand little of Him. You have a little God. 
And your love can only match the size of the God that you understand. And listen, I don't care if you've been a Christian for three months or for three decades. It does not matter. It does, it does not come just with age. It comes with study and understanding and filling your mind with the things of God. You can put that in neutral, or think you put it in neutral, or park, but your affections will grow cold if your understanding is not increasing. Some of you have great affections for Christ. Let me push this a little bit further. I'm going to go after the weak, emo, the weak affections for just a moment. Some of you have great affections for Christ, except they're like a flash in a pan, Real hot for about a day and then really bad for months on end or bad for days on end. Let me just say to you, first of all, that's really annoying to the steady people around you. Let me ask you this. Why is the flash so bright and yet so short? You know, I have a fireplace in my home. It's the first time I've had a wooden fireplace. Uh, not one of them gas ones. You just flip a switch and go. You know, that's kind of cheating. Uh, now I can say that. And I have different wood that, that came with the farm that's already been cut. And as, as I place different wood, there, some of the wood is real old and soft and light. And I have some wood that is newer and, or harder and a different species. I put, the older, uh, I put the older, softer wood in there first. Why? Because it burns the quickest, it lights the easiest, and it's gone in a flash. And then after that, we add the harder wood. Why? Because it burns longer. It lasts longer. It's more steady. Listen, a mind that has not been seasoned by the word is like the soft wood. It burns real hot, for, but for about five minutes. A mind that has been seasoned by the word is like the hard word, or the hard wood. It burns real hot and for a long time. On the flip side of this, some of you have great understanding, but your affections are all over the place. You have great understanding, but your affections are furthest from loving the things of God. Let me be real straight with you. You are probably lost and not a follower of Jesus. If once you understand what God has said in his word and you refuse to trust it and obey it, you are not a follower of Jesus. It's that simple. It's really that simple. we got to stop playing patty cake with this. We're not doing our neighbors any favors when we play patty cake with the status of their soul. If they understand God's word and yet don't love it, don't play patty cake with that. Be truthful, be plain, and be simple. You're probably not a follower of Jesus. 
listen, I know that makes us uncomfortable. I know that makes even some of us sad. But you're not doing anybody any favors other than your own self and your own comfort in that moment. While you let that person walk their way to hell. According to Jeremiah, in the New Covenant, it's put on our mind and on our hearts. We understand it, and we have growing affections for it. Those things are not optional. It's not, well, you might have one or you might have the other. They're both as a package a part of God's new covenant with us. And that's a gift to us that we do not deserve. Here's the beauty, Christian. For those of you who are knowing God's law and loving, following him, two things for you. A, he's giving you the understanding and he's giving you the ability to understand more. Take advantage of it. Use it. It's a gift. Two, He's taking that law and he's writing it on your heart. What a gift. He's giving you the love for it. How do you feed that love? Should give it more understanding. This makes the new covenant a better covenant. This shows us how the new covenant is a heavenly covenant versus a shadow. You say, but I fail at following God. I'm not faithful. You may come to, uh, someone said this, is you may come to God and say, Lord, I believe on Jesus, but I'm not faithful. I'm not trustworthy. And he says to you, if you walk with me by the blood of Jesus, I will make you faithful. I will work faithfulness into you. I will engrave it on your heart. Again, what a gift. What's that look like? Faith in the blood of Jesus, walking in his word, it's really that simple. Faith in the blood of Jesus and walking according to his word, it's really that simple. The promise here, don't miss this, this right of the law and understanding and the loving of it. This is a promise that God will do this. Do you hear me? All you self-righteous people. God will do this. I got a few heads that went up. God will do this. Did you hear me? You say, but I can't change my heart. That's true. You can't. But you can give your mind to the word of God. You can seek the light that shines forth from scripture. You can humble yourself and as your mind is transformed, God will shine that light into your heart, warming it to the things of God. Let me give one extra phrase to that. To give your mind to the Word of God means repenting of your pride as you do it. Why? It's a reversal of what happened in the garden and what we all do. I've got this figured out. I could do it on my own. Instead, Lord, I trust you. And your ways. It's the first promise, according to Jeremiah here, of the new covenant and inward transformation. Second is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. 
Hebrews 8.12, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. There's two parts to this promise. Two parts to this promise. One, God will forgive our wickedness. Amen? God will forgive our wickedness. Though the de- through the death of Jesus Christ, we can be forgiven. Ultimately, fully, eternally. He says, I will be merciful toward their iniquities. What do you think that mercy is he's talking about? He's talking about his son Jesus. The high priest would come into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on top of the mercy seat. The the lid of the covenant, that's the Ark of the Covenant, that top part's known as the mercy seat. As the cherubim on the Ark would look down at God's holy law that was kept inside the Ark, they would look through the blood that was on the mercy seat and have mercy on the people who were breaking the law that's inside of it. Is representing God's view as he looks down at his people. God is merciful towards us when we acknowledge our sin and the blood payment of Christ that sits on the mercy seat of our souls. God will forgive our wickedness. Second, he will remember our sins no more. Does any of you have, raise your hand, if you have a sin that just haunts you and haunts you and haunts you? Anybody? Yeah, I do. Do you know that God remembers that sin no more when it's been paid for? I mean, ask the question, can God forget? God's forgetting is based on his forgiving. There is no forgetting apart from forgiving. That's first of all. But you need to think of it more like a loan to a friend. If you don't pay that loan, your friend is going to remember and remind you on and on and on and on. If you pay off the loan, he will remember the loan, but remember that it's been paid He's left behind your debt. Does it make sense? He's left behind the debt. He has forgotten the debt. Because there is no debt anymore. Does that make sense? There's no debt anymore. He's forgotten the debt. He still remembers the loan and the payment. But he forgets the debt. Our debt has been fully paid. That's the beauty of the new covenant. See, in the old covenant, the lamb would pay the debt but for how long? It was temporary. It was paid temporarily. That's why they had to sacrifice again and again and again. But when Christ comes in, it's paid. And it's paid in full. And it's paid forever. So the debt is completely gone. There's no more debt to remember. The loan has been marked paid. Think about how amazing this is for any relationship. so easy to see people, many people who are embittered people, because they've said they forgive, but yet they hold on to the sin. Instead of like the Lord, when they forgive, actually forgetting the debt. See, listen, if you forgive, if you truly forgive, then the debt is gone. 
And if you remind them of that debt, then logically, you've not forgiven. Because to remind them of a debt is to say the debt is still in existence, which means you have not forgiven. But God doesn't do that. We don't have to worry about that from God. You never hear that from God. You don't have to be afraid. So let me encourage you with this. Feel shame and guilt, confess it, and walk on. When you sin, you should feel the shame of your sin. This is a good thing and not something to run from. You should feel guilt. That's a good thing. It's not something to run from. You should feel the condemnation of that sin. But once you confess your sins to the Lord, we are told what in 1 John 1, 9? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes. Confess it and walk on. Confessing sin has the benefit of throwing off shame and guilt. You confess it, then you know you've forgiven, and you throw off the shame and guilt, and you walk on. Confessing sin brings the delight of cleansing, and cleansing brings the amazing gift of joy. Why? Because you've thrown off the shame and the guilt, and your joy is in the forgiveness that is yours. But the reality is that some of us don't know the joy of sins no longer remembered because we don't know the practice of sins regularly confessed. But those who are in the practice of regularly confessing sins and walking in repentance, you know the sweet joy of throwing off shame and guilt and the sweet joy of your sins no longer remembered. Why? Because you're reminded of it every day. Third promise. We get the inner working of the Spirit. The inner working of the Spirit. I won't go on my tirade here about why you shouldn't call this place a sanctuary, but here it is again. The Spirit resides in the sanctuary, in the temple, the tabernacle, in the new covenant. We become that place in which He resides. This is what happens in verse 11. And they shall not teach, each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's talking about this inner working of the Spirit. Listen, under the old covenant, teaching was a vital part of communicating All of the covenant, the conditions, the consequences, the blessings, the curses. Moses taught the people who in turn taught their children and their children's children. So this doesn't mean that we don't need teachers. And I'm not just aiming for job security here, okay? This doesn't mean that we don't need teachers. You need to pay attention to all the words of the passage. The sentence doesn't stop at, they shall not teach. But it goes on to say, they shall not teach, saying, know the Lord, for the smallest, from the smallest to the greatest will know him. 
Why? Here's what he's simply saying. God will make himself known to the smallest to the greatest. From the smallest to the greatest. And don't miss it. He calls him brother. So he's not referring here to the world in general. He's referring to his people. One commentator said this, in the church, the light of sacred knowledge is promised peculiarly to the church. Hence, this passage belongs to none but to the household of faith. They will know God from the least of us to the greatest of us. What a gift. We have this amazing hope that these people will know God. Promise number four, all things are yours. All things are yours. Things can be broad here. Certainly there is a narrowness to the things that are ours. But Hebrews 8.10, the third part, says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is so much we can say here. But I want to summarize it the way uh, Charles Spurgeon summarize it, summarizes it. He summarizes it this way. Every attribute of God belongs to his people in covenant with him. Now here's the, here's the deal. You're only going to love that statement to the measure which you understand that statement. If your understanding of who God is is like a second grader, you're only going to love it like a second grader. But if, if your understanding it is someone who's been in it and knows it and has it all marked and notated, then your love can grow to that measure. Every attribute of God belongs to his people in covenant with him. I don't mean that all of his attributes, like his immutability, are yours. You're now unchanging and all-powerful. But his unchangingness and his all-powerfulness and his all-wiseness is now working for the good of all of his people. It's all ours. All of that is now ours. Ours for many things. But in this context, ours for keeping the new covenant. All that he is, is at work in us to bring us to who he is calling us to be. Who he has stamped and sealed us in this new covenant to be. Eternal power is ours. Eternal comfort is ours. Perfect guidance is ours. Infinite wisdom is waiting for you just to call out unto. The cattle on a thousand hills are his and now ours. I have five of them. And there's more where that came from. In the new covenant, he guarantees. Do you hear that? Self-righteous people, which by the way is all of us. I will be their God, he says. And declaratively, they shall be my people. They are mine and I am theirs. How's that for the drawing near motif? So can you begin to understand now, as we referred to last week, why the character of the king matters so much? 
Because we are utterly dependent on him to keep it for us and to meet us where we need him to meet us at. The old covenant gave us a play-by-play of God's expectations. What a gift. We don't have to guess. Tomorrow, you don't have to guess what his expectation is. Do you know that? Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Did I forget one? All of the days. He has given us a play-by-play. If it needs answered, if the question needs answered, he's answered it there. Go find it. If it's not there, it probably doesn't need, it does not need answered indeed for a life of godliness. The new covenant gives us the mind and the heart to know it and love it and therefore do it. He writes the law on our minds and gives us a heart to love it. What a gift. What a gift. The whole Bible is a gift to us. We should not throw the, a Bluetooth is pairing request. Y'all are looking at the screen. Well, someone's Bluetooth stopped pairing requests with the screen. It's probably mine. It's Greg's iPad. How about that for crushing the spirit, right? Devil be gone. There we go. Right there it is. I was a little late. All right, now I got to back up like 10 minutes. I'm just... <laughs> All right, hang with me. I really was like five words away. Too bad for you all. <laughs> the old covenant shows us who God is and his expectations. The new covenant gives us the mind and the heart to go do it. That's God's grace to us. And when we fail, we go to him asking for forgiveness and asking him for the faith to go walk faithfully. Let's pray. Father, you indeed have a funny sense of humor, funnier than mine. Father, I pray that you would work these words that are true and good into the hearts and minds of your people, that you would write it, stamp it, print it, engrave it upon them. And any thoughts that we've had in this moment that are not true and good and beautiful according to your word, Father, may you cast them far from our minds. Not, do not let, Father, our flesh and Satan distract us with stupid, wrong, false thoughts even in this moment. Cast them far from us and help us to do the hard work of casting those things from our minds. And let us beg upon you, beg you, Father, to write the things that are true and good deep into our souls. Give us understanding and give us the heart to love what you've called us to understand and do. Father, we know you are great and powerful and mighty to do this, and we know that you will do this in your people because you've promised to do it. So, Father, let us cling to you. For you are good, and we can trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.